It's Hayden's turn. You've got the short straw this week, uh, Hayden. I have. <laughs> and you wanted to start with, well, a surprisingly positive and uplifting bit of talkback radio. Yeah, particularly on this topic. And look, it's not the biggest news of the week. I know that, Mark. But things can get pretty dire around here, as you know. So I wanted to highlight something relatively rare, a discussion about cycling on talkback radio that was not only positive, but genuinely illuminating and useful. And it started when News Talk ZB's nighttime host, Marcus Lush, took a call from Barry from Christchurch, who'd been doored while out cycling. Now, if you don't know what dooring is, it's uh, where drivers who have parked open their car door, they inadvertently take out a passing biker. It's a real problem. You might remember it's what killed a teenager, Levi James, near the Royal Oak roundabout last year. So Lush wanted to find a solution for the issue, and him and Barry had some brainwaves here. They're a good idea to put sliding doors on cars, do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or actually, or or come out the top, or have a gull wing <laughs> where the doors open up. That would be something. But sliding doors are probably the best idea I've ever heard on Talkback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, it'd be 100%, 100% better for cyclists. Oh. It doesn't seem quite feasible necessarily to give every car sliding doors uh, or for that matter exits in their roofs um, did other callers come up with any solutions? I, le- I used that term brainways pretty loosely didn't I? I mean roof exits in particular from Marcus that's a dicey proposition I add some expense to them so uh, I'm glad you asked about other alternative solutions because another caller Todd had a more useful suggestion you literally use your left hand and it makes you turn your head. And if you try it in the car, it works. They, they all open the doors like that in the Netherlands because you know how many cycles there are there. So hang on, so, there's the door. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's, co- it's called the Dutch Reach. It makes sense. And it's actually good. It can stretch your back too, which is always a good thing. Oh, we no, must all do the Dutch. The yeah, okay. I've got to go down yeah. with that topic it's four good- hours ago, Todd. That's brilliant. Reach, the Dutch Reach, Mark, have you heard about it? I have not. Can yeah, you I mean, it? if you think about yourself in a car seat right now and you're, you're, you're undoing your seatbelt, you yeah. do it with your left hand instead of your right and you have to turn your head to, to look behind you and that means that you can check for cyclists or at least to your side. Mm. But I'd encourage listeners sitting at home to do as Marcus did and visualise themselves doing it. It works. It is safer. And you heard about it potentially for the first time. On News Talk ZB Talkback Radio, and that's that's the thing because News Talk ZB not a real safe place for cyclists generally, not particularly friendly territory for the humble cyclists. I mean, I just think of one incident. This is its mid morning host Kerry Woodham talking about coming across a bunch of protesting cyclists in 2021. There were hundreds of them, like they weren't just little family groups. Out there were, well, what seemed like thousands of the hooers coming from everywhere. If you've seen the mice in Australia, you know, the hordes of mice sweeping through the farms, if you can imagine mice in lycra and on bikes, that's what they looked like. Look, it's a funny picture, but I mean, comparing cyclists to a rodent or pest animal, probably a little bit questionable on the radio. Uh, listeners tuning in to Marcus Lush would have come across a much more positive vision and a useful tip for saving cyclists from extinction. Now, before we move on to other um, issues, you wanted to note something that happened a week or two ago across the Tasman. This was journalist Stan Grant, who quit his job fronting Q&A. 
Yeah, Q&A in Australia, different to our own Q&A, and this happened about a week ago. Stan Grant, he's a journalist on the Australian broadcasting company, the ABC. Uh, He's an Aboriginal Australian from the Wiradjuri people. So he stepped down after receiving what he described as a tirade of grotesque racist abuse, and that escalated after he spoke out about colonialism in the lead-up to King Charles's coronation. It was pretty dire and that tirade has even continued after his resignation. Five days ago, a man was charged with making online threats against Grant after Grant actually made a complaint to police. So he's still going through it. But before he departed, uh, he delivered this speech on Q&A. Those who have sent messages of support, thank you so much. But I'll be okay. Please send that support and care to those of my people and all people who feel abandoned and alone who are wondering whether they have a place in this country and who don't have my privileges. To those who have abused me and my family, I would just say, if your aim was to hurt me, would you have succeeded? So there you go. He's a, he was a big name over there too, Stan Grant, um, and you don't often hear people putting it in, I guess, such stark terms. Um, sometimes I guess there's a temptation to not let the bullies see that they've actually got through to you. Yeah, and that's understandable. I mean, you're a person with, of course, a legion of vehement haters yourself, Mark. Is, <laughs> how, is that, you know, you don't want to let them see that they get to you? Is that the... Yeah, well, they do, though. <laughs> you've <laughs> only got to have, I, I always say, that you've only got to have one negative one. Um, There's something about really the human you brain, off, yeah. right? You just you can you forget just... all the good ones, and you get that one negative one, and it just it tunes away at you. Oh, I used to do music. You'd remember a single bad word more than you'd remember a thousand nice ones. And yes. I kind of think that, uh, you know, it's understandable to kind of want to not let them show that they've got through to you, but I think he did, Stan Grant did something really valuable here, openly saying that he was hurt and mm. that that hurt was playing a role in his voice being silenced because that's the impact. It showed how profound the impact of racist taunts can be be on journalists in particular uh, and everyone, but he also spoke about the cost of silencing his voice there, and that's diminished visibility for his people and the removal of an indigenous perspective in the media. This is the end of his speech. To my people, I have always wanted to represent you with pride. I know I might disappoint you sometimes, but in my own little way, I've just wanted to make us seen. And I'm sorry that I can't do that for a little while. To my family, I love you. And to my mum and dad, Bavadilbaradri, give a diramatal in your Bajubaradri, Mandangu. Good night. Isn't exactly um, an isolated incident. It's more and more common. Now, lots of journalists are intimidated or subject to abuse. And uh, the social media, of course, has made that a lot worse. The access is. Yeah, well, easier, isn't it? Direct, easy. Mm. You see it, and uh, that's something that Sam Grant actually talked about—the sort of teams of filth, I think he called it, that he gets on social media. And it, you know, it's important to note that this this happens in New Zealand as well. And it's important to note that the abuse isn't distributed evenly. While you know, me or you might get a mean text or two here and there and don't get me wrong it hurts me very much don't don't do it um but indigenous and female journalists are subject to really vitriolic and seemingly ceaseless abuse on a daily basis so some have written about that in 2019 Shiloh Kino wrote for the spin-off about a day in her life as a Māori journalist where she revealed just lots of the ways that she was belittled or subject 
too racist dog whistling on seemingly an hourly basis. And before she left RNZ, Marnie Dunlop uh, spoke about how sometimes, uh, well, about the racial abuse that she had received while presenting Midday Report. In November 2021, she posted a tweet celebrating what she said was her first time recording a show without receiving a racist text. She'd been presenting the show for more than a year at that point. And this March, she talked about racist attacks and messages streaming in after a news cycle about co-governance, saying, uh, in her words, she's over it, so over it. And when Dunlop resigned from Midday Report, she didn't say these messages played a role in her departure or anything like that. But being over it, so over it, I can't imagine that that is something that makes a job easier to do and more desirable to hang on to. It's not exactly a perk of the job, right? It it makes Mm. it harder, and I think hard enough that in some cases people feel it's safer to opt out. Which therein lies the problem, really, isn't it? Because, you know, the the people who are coming from different perspectives are already underrepresented in the media. Yeah, that's right. The people that are getting abused are often the people that aren't always in positions of prominence in the media. And I'd note that some of our major media organisations have made strides introducing opportunities for Māori journalists. You have the Turito Māori Journalism Cadetship Programme that's backed by NZME and News Hub. Despite that, the industry is still pretty heavily dominated by Pākehā, uh, particularly in high-profile presenting and leadership roles. I say as a Pākehā man talking to a Pākehā man in a high-profile show. I mean, it, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult to get balance when people from different backgrounds have to block out a torrent of abuse to get ahead. And, I mean, you can imagine, just moving past that stuff takes a lot of energy and emotional bandwidth before you even get to the stresses of the job, which, Mm. as you know, are considerable. It is interesting that Marnie talked about the abuse she was subjected to um, escalating, and it was during a news cycle about co-governance because issues of race have been in the headlines quite a bit here recently, including, in fact, this week with our bilingual road signs. Yes, bilingual road signs, and they're just the latest in sort of a series of this. It's been a bit of a running political theme, I guess, in New Zealand for some time. You had Hapuapua, Three Waters, co-governance, Nanaia Mahuta, other things, and journalists have started writing about it. Simon Wilson wrote about the role race may have to play in the upcoming election campaign after attending Christopher Luxon's public meeting at the Birkenhead Bowling Club in Auckland. And most of the headlines after that meeting were about Luxon hinting and later confirming that National would be backing away from the bipartisan medium density housing accord. Uh, But in his column this week, Wilson said that housing wasn't really the main topic that anyone was interested there. It wasn't in there. It wasn't the main discussion point. Instead, most questions for Luxon were about race, and Wilson concluded that race or the perception of unfair advantages being handed to Māori has become a defining issue on the right, and that's mm. been echoed by some others. So at Stuff, Glenn McConnell, uh, he's taken on the same issue, noting that Indigenous public figures have been sent a flurry of racist slurs and coordinated harassment campaigns recently, and uh, he said that National had engaged pretty clumsily with some of those far-right movements, and that sometimes added fuel to the fire. In newsroom, Joe Moyer accused National again of getting sucked into a a regressive race debate after the bilingual signs thing, saying, uh, in an election year, choosing to take the easy path, I guess that's the path of least resistance to some of these uh, questions from uh, race or race-baiting questions, that's the easy path, uh, that further fractures society. So um, it's just not a a great recipe for a 
an easy election season for uh, for our Māori journalists. Yeah, and I know this isn't the main point, but just if we're talking about abuse, if we're going to have a really a, an election that's heavily centred uh, on racial issues, uh, then it will probably uh, direct more of that abuse that Stan Grant suffered towards our own journalists. And I just think if media organisations don't already have a plan in place to support people, support systems for those journalists who might be on the receiving end of abuse, uh, then they should probably look at setting them up. Mm. At the same time, I think I'd note there's been some real pushback against any drift towards race baiting from our reporters, including Wilson, McConnell and Moyer. So in his column, Wilson repeated the truism that elections are won in the middle and he noted that middle New Zealand might look a bit different to what you think it is. Our average age is only 38. Most of middle New Zealand, by that definition, has grown up around Māori words and culture. Our reporters too, much more close in their demographics to that version of middle New Zealand and the bowling club crowd. Mm. And that may partly explain the reaction from the media earlier this week when National Simeon Brown objected to bilingual road signs being put up by Waka Kotahi. Yes, he had a pretty tough time following that pronouncement. Yes, I'd say a very tough time. So News Hub uploaded a full 13-minute video of its reporter Amelia Wade grilling national MPs about bilingual road signs while herself holding a picture of a bilingual road sign, a kind of visual prop to prompt them. Some were pretty comfortable with that sign. The Māori MPs Tama Potaka, Hareti Hipango and Shane Retty, of course, among them. But things got pretty tense when Wade tried to get Brown to answer a question about the sign's legibility. Can we just actually have a look at the sign though? So to, the, to you, is that not balanced? Do you not understand that? So the point there is we need to make sure that people who come to New Zealand as well uh, can understand what's being said on a sign and it's critically important we get the balance right. So, is that, so does that not have the balance right for you? And actually the, the most important thing here is that actually this whole conversation... Sorry, can you just ask the question, does that sign not have the balance right for you? What we should be focused on is fixing our roads uh, and fixing our potholes. This government's focused on changing. That's actually, that's actually not the question, though. Looking at the sign, Simeon, does that balance not right for you? I can read it. Absolutely, can read it. So that's pretty uh, well antagonistic stuff from yeah. the media, and certainly forensic, right? Uh, uh, credit to Wade for not letting a politician repeat their pre-prepared talking points, though, which he kept diverting into there. And sometimes it takes a little bit of persistence to do that, and particularly, if you, particularly I guess, if you're wanting a particular quote for TV. And look, I might be reading a little bit too much into this, but I thought perhaps that's a sign that politicians that might be reaching for the dog whistle may not get a smooth ride from our political press gallery this campaign. And they might get some pretty tough questions and they might get them repeated back to them quite a few times if they try and wriggle their way out. And maybe that won't deter everyone. Politicians are likely to go to places if there are votes in them. But at least it might change the cost-benefit calculation for a few. And uh, hopefully that is the case, because I think avoiding a toxic race-based campaign would not only make the election season nicer for our journalists, but for everyone else as well. Mm. Now, I've got a text in here, uh, Hayden. Um, it says, you've referred to Simon Wilson's column stating that most of the questions at the Birkenhead meeting were about race and Māori. Today, the New Zealand Herald uh, issued a retraction about Simon oh, did Wilson's they? claims. I hadn't seen that retraction. I was just repeating what he said in this column. Now, another media organisation uh, took a strong editorial line on another issue uh, and got pinged by the Media Council for it. 
Yeah, this is an interesting one. So as context, the Ministry of Health a few months ago edited a section of its website about puberty blockers, which said they were safe and reversible. They removed that language. And that was seized on by what staff described as anti-trans groups calling the safety of trans health care into question. Staff actually wrote a story addressing those groups' claims in a story headlined, Puberty Blockers Still Considered Safe and Reversible, Health Ministry Says. And the story said the ministry continued to endorse guidelines from the Professional Association for Transgender Health, Aotearoa, or PATHA, which state that puberty blockers are considered to be fully reversible, and it quoted a couple of other people in that piece, including a spokesperson for Gender Minorities Aotearoa, and they were all in favour of the blockers. But there was a complaint about that uh, to the Media Council, and the Media Council has ruled that the story lacked balance. And Why was that? Uh, yeah, its, its decision said that the article failed because it made no reference to any substantive opinions which query reversibility and long-term safety of puberty blockers. So it noted that the Ministry of Health described puberty blockers as a rapidly evolving area of science that's still being studied and that organisations including the NHS in Britain have said the long-term effects of puberty blockers are unknown. So it said the science isn't settled and questions around the treatment should have been noted in the story. Did stuff accept that? Uh, it, it objected to the complaint, so I guess it didn't really accept that. It essentially said that it didn't want to both sides the debate around this issue. It argued that puberty blockers have been used for decades on children experiencing early puberty and multiple organisations, including the Mayo Clinic back there, use. It said the story, uh, it saw the story in a similar context to its coverage of climate change, where It says platforming climate deniers alongside climate scientists leads to perverse outcomes with unjustified doubt being cast on the reality of climate change, or I guess puberty blockers in this case. So the key quote from it in that is that, quote, in situations where there is a potential for misinformation, stuff seeks to clarify the correct information, not amplify misinformation by repeating it. Now, it's worth noting, too, that the council, the media council, was divided in its decision on stuff's story. Uh, council members Joe Cribb and Ben France Hudson, they said the, the article was fine because of its narrow focus. It didn't actually need... Uh, any more information than it contained. Now, I'd add that stuff story, and this is the context here, it should be seen in the context of a burgeoning global anti-trans rights movement, which, of course, New Zealand had some experience of recently with Kelly Jane Keane Minchel's aborted tour. So multiple trans advocacy organisations, I think they see this stuff about puberty blockers, trans healthcare, as a kind of thin end of the wedge for anti-trans rights campaigners or the anti-trans rights movement, where if they can... uh, cast aspersions or doubt about this one thing, uh, then it could be an entry point into more serious anti-trans sentiment going mainstream. That's certainly been one of the methods in places like the UK, where you have a much more toxic debate about trans issues than you do here. So has there been any criticism of the Media Council's stance from, from journalists? Yeah, I've seen a bit. So the Victoria University law lecturer, Eddie Clark, also put this in the uh, context of another recent Media Council decision. Uh, It didn't uphold a complaint, a similar complaint against NZME, over its coverage of Kelly Jane Keen Mitchell, but it lamented the fact that NZME hadn't printed any opinion pieces backing her views. And it said, The Herald would reasonably be reluctant to give space to some of Miss Keen Mitchell's views on Islam, for example, but there are other core issues worthy of debate. That's the quote from the council. Now, 
now. Stuff senior journalist Charlie Mitchell has publicly criticised this approach as pretty ad hoc, saying, you know, why should Islam be exempted from the balance criteria but not trans rights? It seems like a bit of an arbitrary judgment in his eyes. And the council in his eyes, again, is making things up on the fly, which which issues do and do not require balance, and he finds that incredibly frustrating. And uh, he kind of saw the council determining which subjects are exempt from balance based on pretty highly subjective grounds, basically its own views or prejudices. So that is a pretty difficult situation for a journalist because you don't know which stories are going to be pinged on balance and which aren't because it seems to be just a value judgment by the council. So why is that so frustrating? I mean, is there a solution there? It's It seems kind of hard, right? You can't write an exhaustive list of every subject where the science is essentially settled and where it's not. But uh, it's worth noting that in some respects, at least, it seems the council doesn't believe that uh, that label of settled uh, and of settled science, settled uh, debate uh, applies to trans rights or trans health care. And it's not really specified what scientific tests it's gone through to reach that conclusion. That's not specified. And there's a suspicion that it kind of comes down to just council members' personal views, mm. maybe in the end. So that's a pretty shaky ground for the media to navigate its editorial decisions on. And this is likely to be a continuing and evolving area uh, of debate. It's likely to be the subject of media council complaints in future. But it's interesting to note that at least one of our major media organisations appears to have a different conclusion uh, to the council on the credibility of one side of that debate. Now, on a completely different note, uh, the media had a big awards ceremony over the weekend. Yeah, the Voyager Media Awards, the glitzy glamour of uh, journalism's biggest night. Uh, Big winners were stuffed with 23 plot prizes, including Best Weekly Newspaper for the Press, NZME won website of the year for the fourth year running. You wouldn't know any of that if you'd looked at either of those organisations' stories about the awards, neither of which mentioned that any other media organisation apart from themselves won an award at all. So, I mean, refusing to acknowledge, as you know, your competitors' work is something of a New Zealand media tradition, but it's one the former Herald editor-turned-media commentator Gavin Ellis has criticised this week as unsavoury. So in his blog, Nightly Views, he said, NZME, Stuff, RNZ, TVNZ, News Hub had all failed to note their rival successes and that betrayed a kind of look-only-at-me attitude that has pervaded most of mainstream media, which he calls embarrassingly small-minded. So, I mean, is it, is it a problem that organisations are, are, are focused on their own success and don't want to give anyone else any sort of cred- credit? Yeah, Alice makes a case that it is, and I, I think I can. It's pretty compelling. I mean, <laughs> he makes a case that though they may be rivals for clicks and eyeballs and money, all media organisations have a common interest in celebrating journalistic excellence, pointing out how their profession has achieved positive change. Because we've had multiple surveys now showing trust in journalism is declining. People don't like us. People are tuning out. They're tuning into social media instead. And as Alice notes, at a time when the validity of information is being questioned, a display of collective excellence has great value. Why can't the news industry in this country at least once a year see itself as a collective whole? So Mm. basically, maybe it's time to put the petty rivalries aside in service of a bigger cause, the continued viability of our industry. Mm -hmm. Do any organisations in this country actually do give kudos where kudos is due? Yes, I will give kudos to the kudos givers. (laughs) Uh, 
newsroom noted major award winners, including New Zealand Geographic's Pete McKenzie. He took out Reporter of the Year. And Tova O'Brien, who won Broadcast Reporter of the Year. The Otago Daily Times as well noted some major award winners in its recap of the night. The spin-off acknowledged others as well in its own special sarcastic way. And, I mean, so its story on its own nominees before the awards was headlined, Weird, colon, the spin-off only outlet nominated for Voyager Media Awards. Now, I, I... that that rang a bell for me. I looked it up, and that that style was pioneered by a, a very talented upcoming young journalist called Hayden Donnell. So oh. me, uh, back in 2016, <laughs> when I worked there at the spinoff, and my story on our nominations that year was headlined. Uh, I looked it up. Mandatory story celebrating our. Canon Award nominations while mysteriously ignoring all other media companies. Uh, now, that was a roast of uh, ourselves. And I, in 2018, Toby Manhai did one as well. Exclusive colon, the spin off wins everything at Voyager Media Awards 2018. Now, it's a joke. If I remember rightly, though, the point was to make fun of our media organizations for pretending they're the only game in town. As Alice says, it's embarrassingly petty, but it also places, I think, the credit in the wrong place. Why are we getting parochial on behalf yeah. of the company that would make us redundant to make the <laughs> the worm turn in the stock market at the drop of a hat? In fact, they did just a couple of years ago. What's going on? These awards are a celebration of journalists yeah. and their work, not the companies. Half the journalists have worked for more, more than one of the companies, and the winners... They'd be producing good work no matter which group of shareholders they're producing value for. And surely we can acknowledge the best people in our business no matter which masthead their work is currently appearing under. I don't think we're doing any favours. I relate to it to ourselves. I worked for MediaWorks for a number of years and the radio awards, not awards, the ratings would come out and... uh, um, as far as NZME was concerned, there were only two stations in the ratings. And that was ZB and uh, ZM. And all the other nine networks, radio stations, w- wouldn't be mentioned at all. You know, oh. it was only the, the I think it goes with both sides. Every radio survey that comes out, you get press releases from both organisations saying, best ever survey for NZME, <laughs> best ever survey for MediaWorks. Media it's just mm. a silly kind of, I, I don't know, a silly corporate... Uh, big upping themselves, but yes. I'm not sure that journalists are served by it. Now, another major uh, media news, two of our legacy magazines have changed hands recently. Yeah, first off, North and South, the news magazine. Now, it was bought by the German Kiwi couple, Constantine Richter and Verena Frederik uh, Hazel in 2020 after the closure of Bauer Media uh, when COVID hit, very abrupt closure. And they've been trying to sell it for a while. I think they just struggled to make a go of it financially. And that's a shame because they seemed really committed to it. Uh, but it's a tough thing to do. They had to re-establish a link with subscribers that was broken when Bauer closed. And a few weeks ago, it was confirmed they had sold. The new owners are uh, School Road Publishing. And you might Remember, it it boldly launched four new lifestyle magazines during the COVID lockdown period in 2020. A weird time to be launching titles, but they did it. Uh, Only one of them, though, Woman Remains, as a multi-platform digital title. So why, you know, if they couldn't make a go of those, why would they be trying to take over another one? Possibly it may be a little bit easier to take on an existing brand than to start up a new one during a lockdown. And I think, I mean, the School Road owner... Greg Partington, he told The Hill recently that he's mindful of the magazine's history, its heritage, and that uh, it's a big responsibility requiring a great deal of consideration, seems serious about it. They've got a new editor in Susanna Andrew, Andrew, who's um, Susanna Andrew, editor of Woman. 
uh, and they've reaffirmed their commitment again in this issue, this June issue that just came out, the first one under school road. So I think, I mean, uh, I guess it's because they really respect the magazine and they want it to continue. Well, it has got a good legacy, hasn't it? It's, yeah. It's had a great name. Uh, another one, uh, more Auckland-centric, I suppose, but that's Metro, and it's been sold too. Yeah, and this is a bit different. It was bought by the entrepreneur Simon Chesterman after Bauer again shut up shop in 2020. It's been sold to the business conglomerate Still, which has a much less traditional business model than School Road. How so? Well, it's headed by the Japanese Kiwi businessman Hideaki Fukutake, uh, with the express mission of, this is their quote, starting or acquiring 100 companies that are fundamentally good for New Zealand. It describes itself as an intergenerational organisation with a 500-year outlook. So rather than a pure business investment, this purchase seems like it's been a value judgment. Fukutake obviously decided that Metro is fundamentally good for New Zealand. What other businesses uh, has he decided are, are good for New Zealand? Well, Metro's the fifth acquisition after World of Wearable Arts. King's Plant Barn, that could be a cool employee discount for the Metro staff if they get one. <laughs> I'd love a few plants. Design agency DDMMYY, energy infrastructure uh, company Shape. So a diverse portfolio being assembled there. Uh, if you have any suggestions for further acquisitions, <laughs> text them through. What, what will it mean for the Metro magazine, do you think? Uh, at least for the time being, not too much, it seems. So it, all of the current, I think they've basically got three full-time staff. It's editor Henry Oliver is staying as our Chesterman and the food editor, Gene Teng. Mm-hmm. Now, recently on Midweek Media Watch, we heard about a former Southland Times journalist who left the paper to set up his own small... Email newsletter. Uh, now he has company. Yeah, Logan Savory was a long-time Southland Times reporter. He left staff. He started his own uh, service, the Southland Tribune, on the newsletter platform Substack. And now he's got another rival from the South, uh, former colleague at Stuff, Hamish McNeely. He's doing something similar out of Dunedin with a weekly bulletin of news called The Mish. And the interesting thing, he's still... Hamish is staying on as Stuff's Dunedin reporter, but Stuff has no Dunedin paper because Allied Press publishes the ODT and that kind of dominates mm. the area. So uh, he'll be, yeah, just taking to Substack. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good publication, to be honest. I mean, it's just a bit, I've, I've read it today and it's just, uh, it's more colloquial than maybe you get in an austere stuff story, uh, but you still get really pretty heavily reported stuff. There was one on... Uh, a serial shoplifter today. It contained an eyewitness quote from a security worker who'd seen a man stuff two hams down his pants and walk out of a store. So, I mean, that's the kind of anecdote you don't always get in the mainstream media. So sign up to The Mish if you want more of that.